All right, so I am so excited to be here tonight because, like Matt said, I've been here since I was, you know, eight years old. So 23 now, you do the math. I've been here a long time, and I've I've grown up with the church. When I first, you know, came here with my family, it was in a smaller church out in the middle of uh, old Roseville somewhere, and now it's it's grown substantially as as have I. So it's 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 great to kind of come full circle as I'm you know transferring into a new job in Sacramento and I get to end up on this stage where I've learned so much. So in a large way, I'm a product of my environment, and it's it's because of just the great teaching here. So I'm excited to be able to contribute to that and be able to talk with you guys tonight. So we're in part 16 of our Ecclesiastes series titled God Meets World, and throughout this book, we've kind of heard that life is more or less pointless. Uh, everything under the sun is vapor, is wind, and yeah, it's a it's a very inspiring message. So if you guys have made it this far, um, hopefully depression hasn't set in too hard, and uh, you can make it through one more uh, one more sermon with us tonight. Uh, it's been it's been such a great series, though, seeing that uh, despite that everything is vapor, everything is useless, everything that ultimately comes to ruin, as we'll especially we'll see today, that despite all of that, God is still Lord of all. Correct? Amen. Yeah. And because of that, we have a very, very discouraging book that actually takes on a very encouraging note. And we definitely see that at the end of our passage, we'll get into a little bit later today, where the uh, the narrator who uh, assesses Kohelet and his teachings begins to say, look, you know, despite the fact that life ultimately comes to ruin, there is hope, there is something greater than us, there is something greater than the sun, something above the sun we can look forward to. So anyway, with that, um, let's pray and we'll dive right in, alright? Father, I thank you so much for, uh, for who you are. You are truth and you are life, and that's what we hope is preached here tonight. Father, we pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes, let us see that you are life, let us hear your truth, and let us be uh, encouraged by one of the more, on the surface, depressing books in the Bible. God, I ask that you would move through this place tonight, that uh, our routines would be broken, the things that we come in week, and week, week in, week out, and we hear another lesson, we hear another sermon, and we hear great teaching. But Father, let, it, uh, let tonight be different. Let tonight be a breaking of the mold where it's, it's not just another sermon, but it's something that truly impacts us. Father, thank you so much for your spirit and for uh, your work in all of our lives, God, for all of our testimonies that uh, just glorify you. We ask yourself to reveal yourself to us tonight as we uh, read your word and we dive into it. And yeah, God, I ask that you would speak through me. Anything that's eloquent that I said is you. Anything that's me stumbling over words is definitely me and should be thrown right out. So God, with that, we love you so much. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right. So as I said before, we've gone through the last 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes and we've gone through the teachings of Kohelet, who uh, is put in the place of Solomon. we not sure if it's Solomon or not, but we just... More or less, that's the position we're coming from here. Solomon was, you know, the wisest man that ever lived, and he had access to just about everything under the sun. He had women, he had money, he had fame, he had fortune, he had everything you could possibly want under the sun, and he wrote this beautiful book. So, yeah, that tells you anything. Everything under the sun is ultimately futile. It will not bring you happiness. Sorry. Fortunately, there is good news. There is good news at the end of all of this, and that's what we're going to dig into tonight, and that's what we're going to realize tonight. So like I said, we'll be in Ecclesiastes 12. We're going to round out the entire chapter tonight as we round out this series. So you guys have stuck with us this long. Let's go through a little bit further. Uh, The purpose of Ecclesiastes was 
how are we supposed to live with this eventuality of death, knowing that life ultimately will end? How are we supposed to live now? We're supposed to live our lives in some, in some manner where we're not putting all of our stock, all of our hope, all of our effort into, into temporary things, into things that will ultimately come to ruin. And how are we supposed to live with that? How are we supposed to live knowing that eventuality? And I think that's part of the main beauty in this book is that it brings out, it brings out that truth. Uh, the fill in the blank from the first week in this series was truth is truth no matter how depressing. And that's so true. It's good to realize that truth actually is truth even if it sounds ugly, even if it sounds like it's depressing and dirty and just you don't want to hear it. It's truth. Fortunately, though, as we dig into this truth, we dig into the reality that, yeah, everything under the sun ultimately leads to, you know, just depressed and spinning your wheels. There is something greater. There is something more. There is an eternal kingdom to build into. And we'll, again, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll get there. So the idea is, you know, we're supposed to live in the present with God. That's ultimately how we're supposed to live. And that's what the narrator brings out in the very end of the passage. We're supposed to live with God. And if you guys have watched The Office, you guys know the character Andy. He's kind of an odd guy. He went to Cornell, and um, towards the end of the series, he had a quote that was actually fairly insightful, fairly deep, and he said, you know, I wish someone would tell you when you're in the good old days, so that way you don't get out of the good old days and look back at them. You want to you know what the good old days are when you're in them, right? So you can actually enjoy them to the fullest. Like, how cool would that be if someone just came up to you one day and tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey... These are your good old days. Live them up now while you have a chance. I mean, for me, that would be great. I mean, it's, and that's the kind of the perspective that Ecclesiastes can bring us to is like, look, you know, everything does end eventually, so live today with God and go from there. Take the full advantage of every opportunity you, ha- you can. So with that, let's finally get into the passage. Ecclesiastes 12, if you've got your Bibles, turn there. Let's go. Verse 1 says this, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. All right, one verse in, let's go. So the the main thing you guys can get tonight, if you guys hear anything in my sermon, if you guys tune out or if lightning strikes and this building blows up right now, let me get this one sentence out for you guys. Remember your Creator. If there is any one thing you hear in the next week, let it be that. Remember your Creator. That is the one command given in this chapter, and that is the most important thing I could possibly communicate to you guys tonight, is to remember your Creator. Now, this isn't a remembrance as, you know, you look back on a fond memory and that's all it is. It's not like, it's not a simple remembering of where have you been or what has God done, but it's a remembering going forward. As we progress in our life, as we live out each and every day, it's important to remember your Creator in your actions in that very moment. As you begin each day, as you reach the middle of each day, as you reach the end of each and every day, remember your Creator. The act of simply remembering your Creator as you move forward is a beautiful way to have this kind of sense of, like a priority check in your life every single day as you as you move forward. It's a continual reminder that there is something bigger, something over the sun that is actually worth living for, actually worth working for. And that's why it's the most important, in my mind anyway, the most important sentence in this entire passage is, remember also your Creator. He goes on to say, remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. 
Now, you might hear the, the youth part and might stick on that. You might think, well, gee, my youth is 40 years behind me, so does this verse apply to me? So the answer is yes, and that leads us to the fill in the blank. The fill in the blank is this. You are, excuse me, I almost forgot the fill in the blank. <laughs> Awkward, right? Now is the youngest you will ever be. Now is the youngest you will ever be is the fill in the blank. That was close. Completely spaced on that. Didn't have it in my notes. Thank you, God. Uh, now is the youngest you will ever be. So when you hear youth, you shouldn't hear, oh, gee, when I was 16, when I was 18, when I was 20 as your youth. Youth is right now. Your youth is right now. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Youth is right now. You are no longer, or you will not be any younger ne- later than you are right now. So what's the circumstance you're waiting for? Why wait to serve God? Why wait to remember your Creator? Why wait to have that purpose that, that purpose that reaches in the eternity? And why wait to, why wait to reach that? Why wait to seize that and live with that idea in mind? Now is the youngest you will ever be. The other cool thing with youth is that because this is wisdom literature, it can be taken a little more creatively. And the idea of youth is meant to represent this kind of idea of joy, this idea of enthusiasm. So, you know that phrase where everyone says age is just a number? Exactly. Youth, it's a mindset. It's not just, you know, how old is your body, but how old is your mind? Youth is this exuberance for the things of God, this exuberance as you remember Christ, as you remember your Creator. That's the youthfulness that that this is asking for. In your youth, in your exuberance, pursue the things of God. Pursue that... Whatever, whatever it is that stirs in your chest as you remember your Creator, pursue that with youthful exuberance because now is the youngest you will ever be. Again, this idea of youth, it's, it's important to grasp onto because it's not, you know, I missed the opportunity when I was 20 to do this and now my life is on this track. It's now. You are, where you're at now is important to realize you can shift that. You can change that. You can pursue God in that moment and God will use you wherever you're at. So moving on, it gets to arguably the most or the trickiest passage in Ecclesiastes to understand. So you know, it got left to the youth to decide. So yeah. Anyway, here we go. This is uh, this is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful illustration of one of two things, and ultimately it leads to the same place. So I'll explain both and let you kind of pick which one uh sits with you more but it's again it ultimately it serves to emphasize the idea of remember your creator but here we go remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Stop there. We're going to analyze things for a little bit here. The commentary or the commentators kind of mostly fall on this one idea that this is an allegory of a man growing old and eventually dying. And this idea has been around for centuries, so it's actually shaped the way our translations have worked themselves out. And as you dig into it, there's this idea of, you know, if, if, if once you look at it with this mindset of, oh yeah, I can see the old man, I can see the old man in the descriptions here, 
it's hard to get your mind out from anything else. But there's also this picture of a crumbling house, a crumbling ruin by the side of the road. And both, like I said, both emphasize the same point. So it's, why not explain both and have it further, or further expand on the point more? It seems like you can't go wrong with too much description to underline the importance of remembering your creator and living with that in mind. So the first thing we're going to go through is, uh, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds, and the clouds come back. It's this idea of the year is meant to represent kind of, or thought to symbolize the lifespan of a man. Where, like, you know, spring and summer are meant to, are meant to represent youthfulness, meant, re- meant to represent this, uh, the younger side of life. Where, you know, you get, you know, these spring showers, but they're not too bad, and you move on through life, and mostly it's sunny, mostly it's warm, mostly it's enjoyable. But as you grow older, you get to this point where you reach fall and winter, and the seasons become a little harsher, it's a little darker, it's a little cloudier all the time. Rain comes and then clouds replace the, cl- or clouds replace the rain, and you don't really see the sun too much anymore. So it's this kind of darkening picture of the light begins to fade, and then you die. Really encouraging, yeah? So that's kind of the first part, and that is just, it's, it's depressing, let's be real, it's depressing. But oh, don't worry, it gets worse. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I didn't pick the passage. So it then goes through with this, uh, this explanation of the keepers of the house tremble, the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few. This is the idea that no matter what you do in your youth, no matter how much you build your body up, no matter how much you strengthen your body, ultimately nature does take its toll and your limbs aren't strong and you lose kind of you know, the upright posture, you kind of bend over. And the grinders that are talking about here are allegorically the, the teeth. You eventually you know, begin teeth falling out and chewing food is more difficult. Again, really, really depressing. I am sorry. But it gets worse. <laughs> Again, I'm sorry. So as you know, you're going through this, it gets to the point where uh, looking through the window, that imagery is the idea that as you get older, your eyesight fades. As you get older, your eyesight fades, and the windows you're looking through become dim. And uh, it talks about you know, the terrors on the heights, and it's this idea of you're afraid of heights because climbing downstairs is difficult, because there are obstacles in the way, and it's, just, it's hard to go places because there's constantly things in the way. So as an old man, life is difficult because there are all these obstacles, and they become, you know, mountains really do look like, or excuse me, molehills really do look like mountains because your body is no longer equipped to surmount these things. And then it gets even more delightful, and it says, Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel at the, or broken at the cistern. This is, again, with it, going with the allegory, the silver cord is meant to be, or meant to thought to be the neck, the golden bowl being the head, and so they're saying the silver cord is snapped. Hey, your neck broke. Uh, so this is, again, this is the idea of death. This is the finality. Regardless of what struggles you've been going through, death has now finally taken this person and um, whatever he had built, whatever he had done is now wasted. And that's the, uh, that's the allegorical standpoint. That's the m- picture of the old man that is commonly, commonly written out in commentaries now. The picture that I like a little better because it seems to paint a little more broad picture is the idea of a crumbling ruin by the side of the road. When I first read this passage, before I had dug into the commentaries, that was the picture I had gotten. Was basically you've got this like this 
wealthy house and you've got all these workers in the house and eventually, you know, piece by piece, things begin to fade. Things, the house loses its luster. The wealth is slowly drained from the house. The workers begin to leave and nature kind of takes over. And that's, that's the, that's the actual metaphor that people think that this might be as well. Taking it from a more literal standpoint and saying, no, this is actually just a wealthy house that's become um, derelict and is now just looked at as, like and passing on the side of the road. It used to be this, you know, big wealthy mansion that stood for power, stood for wealth, and is now broken. And nature is beginning to reclaim it. You know, there's vines creeping up the walls. The trees are beginning to overgrow. The the locusts are beginning to take over the garden because there's no there's no one there to tend the garden. So the locusts sweep in and absolutely destroy anything that man had wrought. Even in man's taming of nature in the form of building a garden, the locusts have even wrecked that. So you're left with the delightful picture of no matter what you do, no matter what you build up, nature ultimately doesn't care and will ruin it. Again, we're left with a really encouraging story here so far. I'm sorry. But it gets better, trust me. And this is the beautiful part. After you go through all of this and dust returns to dust... After man, verse, I think it's seven, and dust, return, and dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Ultimately, that's the picture here. No matter if your house was well built, no matter if your garden was well tended, no matter if the, uh, the silver cord, which I thought was interesting, the silver cord in the house metaphor is thought to be the cord that suspended kind of the chandelier of the house. The golden bowl being the bowl that held the candles or held the, uh, the wicks for the oil. And as the silver cord snaps, the chandelier falls to the ground and shatters. The oil pours out, the wicks are now useless. And despite the house still being standing, despite the house still being more or less functioning, it now no longer has light. The source of light in the house is now broken, has now faded, and is now useless. And now the house without any kind of light is just a dark hole where nature is kind of having its way with the house. And the thought occurred to me, you know, it says the silver cord here, but so it denotes a wealthy home. It denotes denotes a home with a lot of servants, with a lot of um, rich people living in it and a lot of servants. But what if the cord was, was rope? What if the golden bowl, rather than being gold of precious metal and finely crafted, what if it was clay? Just this misshapen clay monstrosity suspended by a rope from the ceiling in a clay hut. The, they both come to ruin the exact same. No matter what, if your house is you know, magnificent or if it's a very humble abode, no matter what, ultimately it comes to, it comes to ruin. And it, in nature, it just keeps on plowing through regardless of what was there. It has, no, it has no recollection. It has no notice of what we've built. Going with the old man metaphor, he talks about the mourners go through the streets, and then that's the last you hear of it. Regardless of who that man was, if you go with the, the allegory there, if, no matter who the old man was, he could have been someone important. He could have been someone who had many, many friends, many relatives. He could have been nobody at all. The mourners would have come regardless. The mourners would have came through the streets. They would have had their peace. And then city life returns back to normal. You know, they, might, they would mourn for a little bit, but then the streets begin to resume the hustle and bustle of just daily life. And we're left back with even the city, even people, not nature, but people in this case, have all but forgotten. doesn't matter how famous you were. 
It doesn't matter how rich you were, how many friends you had. The legacy is you get mourners at the end, and then city life returns to normal. Your friends and family might remember you. Hopefully they will, but you're left with the fact that ultimately, no matter how big your house was, no matter how important you were, if you were hugely popular, city life returns to normal afterwards. This is where the, the wisdom writings of Kohelet end. He said, look, no matter what you have, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your legacy has been, ultimately your spirit returns to God, dust returns to dust, and that's it. So what we have here is because it seems like the writing shifts. The tone shifts in this writing at this point, and thank God it does because that was horribly depressing. Am I right? So the tone shifts, and we have kind of like a princess bride moment here. You know how you're like, you know, throughout the story, you're, you're more or less only in the world of the characters, and you see the story unfold, and you're in it. And then all of a sudden, you hear this kid screaming out of nowhere, Wait, why do you do that? And you're like, you get, you get shaken, because you're like, wait, hold on. I was in this, what just happened? But you, you zoom back out to the story being told from the grandpa to his grandkid, and... It's, it's him explaining the story. He's explaining what's going on. He's, he's making unclear things clear again. And I think that's the important thing to remember here is that it's been horribly depressing for the last eight verses. And finally, finally in verse 9, you begin to see the sun peeking over the horizon just a little bit. And that's where, that's where things begin to shift. That's where we begin to get into the real, the real thrust of the passage that talks about remembering your Creator. And it's at this point that as I was going through, I was like, I was really digging the imagery because despite how depressing it was, it painted this really vivid picture, especially if you go with the house metaphor. Imagine this, you know, this brick house built up or, you know, these stones cobbled together to build a house and you've got these vines creeping up the walls. You've got trees overgrowing. You've got the garden kind of just spilling over the walls that it was once contained with. You've got locusts running through the garden and tearing apart anything they want. You've got, you know, broken pottery, broken chandeliers on the ground. And it's just, it's a really vivid picture of the reality that things come to ruin. And I think the, the juxtaposition of these two things, because of how bleak the first part was, because of how bleak that description is, it really serves to underline and emphasize the point of remembering your Creator. It serves to emphasize how impactful that is, because when you remember your Creator, you rise above all of that. So we pick it up in verse 9, and we start to hear good news. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly wrote the words of truth. This is the narrator's evaluation of Kohelet. This is his evaluation of the work that he's been working through with, who we'll see in a moment is his son. He's going through this with his son and narrating all of this. And this is his kind of his caption on what he's just read. But he's evaluating who Kohelet was. He was saying, look, he was a very wise man. He was very knowledgeable. What he has to say is true. What he has to say is good. And that's so it's saying, like, you know, even as a narrator who we see as the ultimate encouragement in this passage, he's saying, look, what I'm about to say is based off of this. This is true. This has been arranged. This has been 
given by someone with with a lot of knowledge, with a lot of just knowing what he's talking about. He was a very wise man. Not only was he smart, he put it into action. He lived with that. So we pick it up in verse 11 where he says this, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and of much, stirred, of much study is awareness of the flesh. So there's a little bit going on there. We're going to unpack it a little more slowly. But he says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. This idea of a goad is something that shepherds would use to drive oxen. And it's essentially like a 10-foot-long pointy stick. Uh, what the shepherd would do, he would be standing behind the oxen, and as the oxen would veer to the right or to the left, he would simply tap one with the stick, and they would, you know, they would feel the sharp pain in their, in their flank, and they would, they would turn back on the course. As the shepherd used this goad, he would keep the oxen fixed on the proper course. Wherever they were supposed to be going, that's where he would keep them going. He would keep them oriented in that direction, and they, it was a, it was a sharp pain, but they, they began, they became accustomed to it. They became to, ex, they, they began to expect it. The goad was a, almost a welcome pain because it, when they got point, when they got poked, they knew that that was the way they were supposed to be going. As they trusted their shepherd, they expected it and they didn't like the poke, but it kept them going where they needed to go. And it talks about nails being firmly, um, firmly planted. These aren't, you know, these little, like, you know, little nails you hammer into, you know, two by four. These are, you know, good three foot long tent pegs that are nails. These things are driven into the ground to keep up these massive tents. So when they say, you know, these are nails that are firmly planted, this isn't like a nail you can just rip out of a board. This sucker is three feet long and pointy and driven really far in the ground. And once that is rooted, whatever, it, whatever it's rooting, whatever's being held up by this nail, by this tent peg, it's not going anywhere. So he's saying these, the words of wisdom, the teachings that we're being exposed to here, these things are like goads. They're supposed, to, they're supposed to guide us. They're supposed to keep us in check. These are supposed to be things that we, we take in and we meditate on, we listen to, and we apply to our lives so that we are kept on the straight path. We're kept on the right path, and we're kept following God. And he says, also, as you continue to, continue to meditate on these wisdom writings, they're like nails. They keep you, they keep you planted where you should be. You're not going to get easily blown over by the wind. You're not going to get knocked to and fro from stray traffic. You're not going to be, you're not going to be able to get up and move because you think something's better over somewhere else. Like it's going to keep you rooted where you need to be. So as we're going through this last section here, the question that's more or less being asked is, is what are you chasing? What path are you on? And as, we're, as, we're, as, we, as we look at that question, as we evaluate that question, what are we chasing? It's a gut check. For me, it's, it was one of those questions that I had to really solidly ask myself. Back several years ago before I went to Jessup, I was planning on being an engineering student. I loved math, I loved physics, I loved buildings, I loved drafting. I was going to go into that side of things, and I had my more or less my future planned out. And... Through a crazy array of circumstances, God got my attention, and He pointed me in the in the direction of ministry. And I didn't know what was going on, but it was one of those things where where was my where was my heart? What was I chasing? What was the thing that I wanted most? And 
when it came down to it, when it came down to, you know, engineer or life in ministry, it was one of the most vivid conversations I remember having with God because it was, you know, am I going to want to choose a safe, stable life with a lot of money or am I going to, you know, go to ministry where the idea is generally, oh, you don't make much. It's a, it's a lot, it's a lot different. And for me, that was huge at the time. For me, that was a very real conversation that I actually had the nerve to say, God, can I not answer you just yet? Uh, God being loving and gracious, he said, okay, get back to me. And I was like, all right, cool. I got back to him the next day because I realized how stupid I was being and said, all right, God, let's go. And I signed up for Jessup like two weeks later. So that brought me here. So yeah, let's, but again, the question we're asking is what are you chasing? And I have complete faith in a statement that God gives meaning to an otherwise meaningless life. Through all of this, you know, we've just discussed this ruin by the side of the road. We've just discussed an old man coming to an old age and his body eventually shutting down on him systematically and coming to death. So like I said earlier, when you remember your creator, you rise above all of that. What are you chasing? Where is your heart? What is the, what's the priority in your life right now? If it all comes to ruin, what was the point of that? If you followed whatever it was you're chasing to the uh, the fullest extent, or whatever you feel like is the, the fullest extent is, because remember Solomon had everything. It wasn't enough for Solomon. What makes you think it'll be good enough for you? If you take it to the fullest extent, what does it come to? Other than ruin. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says everything under the sun is vapor. It is like, it's like trying to grab onto mist. You can't. It will ultimately come to ruin what is left. So we see it says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and in much study there is a wariness of the flesh. And this is a rather personal thing. I just graduated college. Of much studying there is wariness of the flesh. There is no truer statement than that. There are so many nights where I stayed up studying so long for tests or stayed up writing these massive papers and all I got was sleep deprivation. I got a nice, I got a nice mark on a paper and I walked into class tired the next day. I walked into class barely able to keep my eyes open and there was still so much more to learn. I walked into class ready to learn more and I had just filled my head with all kinds of things the night before. Of much studying, there is wariness of the flesh. There is no end to knowledge. There is no end to what we can learn. And that's, again, it goes back to what is the what is the fullest extent of what it is you're chasing. I can never learn all there is to know. My theology will never be perfect, no matter how much I study, no matter how much I pray, no matter how much I study, no matter how many people I talk to about it. My theology will always there will always be more because God is infinite goes with anything else. There's always more money. There's always more popularity. There's always more fame. There's always more, there's always more relationships. You can always find something more. If you chase things under the sun, you will never be fulfilled. You will be spinning your wheels and you will end up stressed, tired, and trying to keep what you've fought to earn. That is why it's important to remember your creator. As you remember your creator, you are elevated above the sun. You realize that there is something more, that there is someone greater, and that there is something higher. There's a higher purpose to your life as you remember your Creator. There is nothing more important than that. For the last two verses, that's what that's what the narrator gets down to is that very point. And as I was studying, I came across this idea that 
Uh, in Jewish tradition, they always like to end on a good note. So in the end of this, they actually reverse the order of the verses. It doesn't go 13-14, it goes 14-13. So we're going to read it like that because I, it's, it's put together so well and it just works as you flip it around either way. He says, For God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The thought I want to leave with is this. What legacy are you building? Is your legacy tied up in things under the sun? Is your legacy akin to that of the ruined house on the side of the road? Or is your legacy structured and built upon the things that you have been building into with God? See, God's kingdom is eternal. Man's kingdom ends. No one knows when that day is. Ask yourselves the question, if, you're, if, you're, if, if, those, if that thought convicts you, if the thought of what is my legacy really convicts you, ask yourself this question. When does the world end? Because that's a terrifying thought. If your legacy, if, you're, if who you are is built in this idea of your legacy on this earth, you may not reach where you want to be. The world may end before your legacy is ever fully reached in your eyes. Regardless of what there is to reach later, your legacy might end here before you're ready. But if you remember your creator, if you remember God and keep his commandments, you are building into an eternal kingdom. And I guarantee you, the moment God calls you home, your work is done and your part of the kingdom has been built. Not only is it built, but it's safe for eternity. It is not going to come to ruin at the end of this miserable rock in the middle of space. It will last for eternity as God recreates the earth in His image, the way it was meant to be. Where is your kingdom? What is your legacy? Is your legacy on this earth, or is it in something greater, something above the sun? Who do you fear? Who do you remember every single day? Do you fear man? Do you fear what man can say, what man can do to your kingdom? Or do you fear God? Do you fear the creator of the earth who gave you life, who gave you breath, and will take it away when you are done doing what he wants you to do on this earth? God is creator. His plan is the best thing ever for your life. No matter what you can do on this earth, I guarantee you, God dreams bigger. So like I said, it ends where it began. Remember your creator. This earth will fade. Memory will fade. Legacies are lost. Legacies are built. But ultimately, what, is it, what does it end up at? What is your legacy? If the prayer team could come on up, we'll leave with this thought. Your legacy is, is one of two things. You're left with a choice. Either you build your legacy in... And something that will ultimately become a ruined house at the side of the road. Or you spend your legacy building something greater. You spend your legacy building into God's legacy, into God's story, building God's kingdom. As you remember your creator, as you go forth every single day, remember it is who you serve. Remember who it is that gave you life, that gave you breath, that gave you purpose. If we learn anything, God gives purpose. God gives us a legacy to shoot for, to build into. And his legacy lasts forever. It had no beginning. It will have no end. It's a very real question. What legacy are you building?
pray with me? Father, thank you so much. God, you, you are so good. You are truth and you are life. God, you took me so far off note, and I am so glad you did, because what I had to say was not nearly as important than what you did tonight. Father, I pray that you would, that you would stir in our hearts something deeper, stir in our hearts this, this idea of legacy, God. Remind us that no matter how old we are, now is the youngest we will ever be, and there is no better time to pursue your legacy, to pursue our part in your story, than right now. Father, don't let's be another night where we go home and our life remains unchanged. Don't let these words fall upon deaf ears. Father, stir in us something deep, something great. Move in us. Give us the courage to, to possibly to, to set aside the things that we might be pursuing that aren't going to amount to anything. Give us the strength to, to shift our eyes to you and start remembering you in our daily life. Father, we love you so much, and we just ask that you would continue to continue to work on us, continue to work in us, continue to work through us, God. Let us, let us be your body. God, let us serve one another. Let us be your body, and let us build into your legacy. God, we love you so much. God, we can only pray this because it's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen.